The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. It's good to see all of you. Um, I know we say that every time we talk, but uh, it really is. Uh, it's just so nice to see um, so many faces, familiar and not, uh, but here um, uh, sitting Sazen. Um, I'm Echo. I'm a senior student here at the Village Zendo. Um, I've been practicing a long time um, here at the Zendo. And um, I'm in Jupiter, Florida. We just arrived back here after uh, a season in western New York State on Lake Chautauqua. Lots of views in that word, uh, where we where we spend summer. Uh, but here the you know the sun is shining, the palm trees are waving and the water is lapping at the dock, and you might hear that from time to time in the background. Um, but the clouds here are pretty amazing. I have to say the South does uh, magnificent clouds. Um, I think it's this combination of, you know, what's going on in the atmosphere with the warm and the cool and all of the, uh, the moisture that's there. Um, and I just got back from a neighborhood walk, which I did uh, this morning. So there's lots of green here in South Florida this time of year. And it's cool with temps in the 50s, um, but I noticed there are a lot of changes in my neighborhood. So they're subtle, some of them, uh, over time, but when I haven't seen them in three or four months, the, the place looks different. Um, so my neighborhood's changed. There are some new houses. Uh, there are some different cars. There are more dogs. Uh, the water is a little higher. Um, but, you know, just like with my life, things are, are subtly different, mostly, uh, but different over time. And that brought me to what I want to talk about today, which is why I sit Zazen, why I meditate. Uh, because I've been, been sitting Zazen now for a couple of decades anyway. And um, it, if I look at that from this distance of time, this distance, um, I can I can see why I continue to sit. Um, so just a little background. I uh, I found the village Zendo uh, about two decades ago. I just moved to New York City. I sat with another Zen sitter when I first got there, but there just wasn't any personal connection. I had a had something happen when I was on my cushion. I wanted to talk with someone about it, and I inquired, and I got an email back encouraging me to sit more. And um, that's very Zen. Right? <laughs> Just keep sitting, but it just—I didn't—I just didn't feel like I had a connection there. And so, by some miracle, a friend of mine who was then like a, my second tier of acquaintances, Jane Smith, for those of you who know her, who's a dear friend now, uh, mentioned that there was a really small Zen group near me on Washington Square Park. And so I, I wandered into this living room that was crowded with Zafus and Zabutans and. Of course, in their pre-Roshi state, there were Inkyo and Joshin and uh, the village Zendo. And there was plenty of uh, attention and personal connection there. Um, there was a living room for one that we were sitting in. Then there was the miso soup that was in the kitchen, you know, whenever we had Kai, and occasionally we'd have a meal out together. Um, and I think it was in the second year that I took Jukai with uh, part of our small Sangha. And then within a couple of years, I had moved to Sausalito for an adventure that included living on a houseboat, driving over the Golden Gate Bridge to go to work as a consultant for a startup, and meeting my now husband, Bob, who some of you know is Sui Ryu. 
but even then I kept in touch. I did my Jukai study remotely. I came back year after year for Sashin's, uh, flying in from, uh, from wherever I was. Uh, and some days, some years, I sit more, and some I sit less, but I always sit. And um, I'm not the most scholarly of Zen students. I thought I would be. I, I bought lots of books. Uh, as you can see from my background, that's uh, it's a habit I have of buying books. Uh, and, uh, and I really thought I would be quite scholarly. It's uh, part of what attracted me to Zen was this long history of, of scholarship. But uh, it just hasn't been my path so far. I was really drawn to the simplicity of the practice, uh, a way that I wanted to live, um, but I didn't realize at all the impacts that it would have on my life. Um, so early on in my days of sitting, uh, I had years of aches in my knees, uh, times I didn't think I would get through our sitting periods. Uh, I had uh, long session periods, I'd have my back would hurt. I had sort of my long-suffering neck and shoulders, which had their own issues that we brought into the Zen practice. And, um, and often uh, I, was, I was overtired from work and I was so sleepy that I could hardly make it through the afternoon sessions. And then when on my cushion, I'd have these endless periods of mind games, making up stories about my life or about something I'd read about Zen or something someone had said. And sometimes, sometimes coming back to my breath. And then there'd be more stories, more breath. Um, I remember Daito Roshi, who is the founder of the Zen Mountain Monastery, who's maybe best known otherwise as a photographer, but he was also a chemist. And um, he, said, he said he used to spend these really long chemical equations during Zazen uh, to keep his mind occupied, uh, right up until he didn't. And, uh, and he made it uh, to be, uh, and found, found his Roshiness. Uh, so for, for uh, anyone else who uh, does that with their minds, there's, there's hope uh, for, for untraining them. Um, but occasionally, uh, my Zen would be punctuated with a meeting with a teacher, right? Uh, and I have to say, an endlessly patient teacher, uh, just telling me time after time to get out of my head endless ways to tell me to get out of my head. But my head's really important to me. I've been rewarded for using it my whole life. I've been encouraged to use it and then rewarded for using it in every facet of my life, except for my Zen practice. So trusting my teachers, I wanted to get out of my head when I was sitting, but I didn't know how to do that. So when I lived, I lived in Houston for a couple of decades earlier, and I encountered my first yoga teacher. His name was Lex. So Lex had been teaching yoga in Houston, well, forever. Uh, I'd show up at his yoga studio after a really long day at work. I was exhausted. I would sleep through any posture that was on the floor that lasted more than about 30 seconds. Uh, and um, I felt a lot better after I left. But Lex said two things that stuck with me and that really applied to Zen practice. The first thing he said was, he said, some of you want to do yoga, and some of you want to want to do yoga, and some of you want to want to want to do yoga. He said, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. Just do the yoga. But Lex wasn't entirely heartless. He had a second piece of advice, 
And the second piece of advice had to do with Houston's paper phone book. So Houston had these phone books that were, I don't know, a good four or five inches thick. And there were so many, so many names and addresses that it had to be split into two. So we had these two sets of phone books that were about this thick. And um, Alexa's advice was this. He said, if you have any difficulty sitting cross-legged, right? So we're sitting and our knees are up in the air. He said, place a phone book under each knee and every day take out a couple of pages. So I could not begin to comprehend the usefulness of that advice. The idea that playing that kind of a long game of making sort of teeny tiny incremental practice improvement was just completely beyond my comprehension. I mean, I was literally moving mountains in my day job and he was asking me to make progress one tiny milli, milli, millimeter at a time. So I ignored him. Of course, now I think, well, what if I had heeded his words, right? Um, but back to Zen, sort of like the phone book method, my Zazen gradually improved. And by improved, I mean it wasn't so painful and uncomfortable, at least not all the time. But more importantly, I got better at staying with my breath. And finally, koans got introduced. And a koan, for anyone who's new, is just... Uh, um, there's a history in, in Zen of these, they're, they're stories or sayings or puzzles that, that can't be solved with the logical mind, I think is the best way to say it. Um, and the first one for most people is one called Mu. Um, and I'll say my experience with Mu was blessedly quick. Uh, but after that, reading a nonsensical, nonsensical, uh, koan, uh, which required me to set aside my logic and trust, distrust in the outcome, uh, was a really big stretch. Um, but I did my koans and I still sat and I showed up for session and I saw Roshi whenever I was able to visit New York City. So that's what was going on with my Zazen, but what was happening off the cushion? This is over decades. So in the before times, when I think about the before the village Zendo, I was working in a big corporate job. And by big, I mean a lot of hyper tech, hyper growth tech. Uh, I had lots of time in airplanes. I had lots of time hiring and managing and planning and just generally scrambling to keep up. And I loved every minute of it. And it was all consuming. Uh, and I did that for, for 14 years. Um, and at one point I realized I was just craving silence in my always on 24 seven world with all that adrenaline that came with it. I found myself craving some silence. So just craving a time of sort of no new input. So the first thing I did was I, I was in Houston and it was winter and it was cold and dark and I booked myself uh, a ticket to a beachside resort in Mexico. And I don't even recall where it was. Uh, it was winter at home, but then I was suddenly in this place with a patio and lots of sunshine. And I didn't take very much with me. I just took charcoal and paper with me. And and I, for the first time in my life, I drew. And I drew for three days. I never left my room. I ate room service. I soaked up the sunshine. I didn't have any new input. And then I flew home. And that's part of why I don't remember where I was, because it didn't matter. It was just a place that didn't have anything coming at me. And then a year or so later, 
I checked myself into a Catholic monastery outside of Houston alone. So no big group adventure for me. I just had a small suitcase and one tiny book of Taoist phrases. Uh, and it was wonderful. I had, uh, I had a, th- a three-day weekend uh, where I just let things settle. Uh, the nuns uh, took care of, of feeding. Uh, I, had a, I had a bed and I had a garden and it was lovely. And in part because of that, I eventually found a way that I wanted to live and that connected me to Zen. And then I found the village Zendo. And importantly, I realized over time, because of this, because I sit so I was in, my behaviors changed over time. And some of the ways that I know that they changed, I know, and I know because I know myself, and sometimes it's because other people have, have commented on the ways that uh, I've changed. But I know I got, as I got better at paying attention to my breath, I got better at paying attention to other things. I began to see things from multiple perspectives, and I had a um, much greater respect for causes and conditions. So, for example, I got my uh, my booster shot last week, yay! Um, and the first day or so, feeling really flu-like, um, I woke up sort of feeling that the day after the booster shot. But then the thought that came was, a lot of people wake up feeling like this every day, every day. They wake up feeling like this. And it, it was an experience that was so different for me because I don't wake up feeling like that every day. And, and I thought, what I've had that thought without my zazen, what I, have, what I have noticed, what was going on for other people outside my little sphere. And honestly, my answer is no. That, that comes from, from my sitting. It comes from paying attention to my breath. And I was talking with Svirio about pumpkin carving. When I first moved to Vermont, um, I had a new friend. She invited me to come to her house and carve pumpkins for, for, ha- for the Halloween season. And I did, and it was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And I thanked her, and I said, wow, that was the first time I ever carved a pumpkin. I was in my 40s. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And she said, oh, that makes me so sad. And... Um, Sriyu pointed out, because we know this person pretty well, she was brought up in an atmosphere of negativity, so that is her lens. Uh, and uh, it's something that I, I would not have seen or appreciated without my Zazen. There's a line from the Zen Grove book that says, the sound of depressing rain on the plantain leaves. The sound of depressing rain on the plantain leaves. Right, so who was depressed? The rain? No. Um, I'm also, I'm able to see these different perspectives really not so much as right or wrong most of the time, but as a result of causes and conditions. Um, that I can see that most people do what they do and because they think it's in their best self-interest. I might sometimes dispute their uh, definition of self, but they're working out of what they think is their best self-interest. I don't always see that in the moment, and that's when it's hard, but I often do. Uh, and I definitely do more uh, when I'm consistent with my practice. The other thing I noticed is I noticed a big difference in my work. I'm a better listener now than I was. Maybe I could even say I'm a listener now <laughs> when I wasn't before. Um, 
because I can be more present to people when they're speaking. I'm routinely told by people I've met, even just over Zoom, uh, that I give off a deep sense of calm and that allows them to talk to me about many things, to trust me. And that's something I definitely know was not there before my Zen practice. Yeah. We were uh, on our trip from New York back down to Florida this time. We stopped at a place called Serenby, which is just outside Atlanta. It's a it's really wonderful, intentional, biophilic community outside of Atlanta. And they served us breakfast. Um, and I paid attention, right, to the 72 labors. So what it really took to get food on my table in this place, uh, to the farmers and the families of the farmers and the truckers and the, the people that need to go the last mile and to the berries and, and the eggs and just paying attention to what was right in front of me as opposed to just having my breakfast and moving on uh, as I have done a lot of my life. Another difference would be I notice, you know, sort of during a post-session, particularly post-session, of course, you experienced your Reiki, right? And that's wonderful. Uh, it's wonderful to be in that uh, sort of centered place. And um, it's wonderful, but it, it's just not what it's all about. Sometimes I can even see my ego. Uh, we had a discussion among the senior students. We get together every month or so. And um, one of the questions that came up and was actually from a, someone who had just joined uh, a new Susho said, um, what does it mean to be a senior student? And uh, I recalled a conversation I had with uh, Anraku, who was a senior student at the Village Sindo uh, some time ago. And I went in to see her doing an interview, and I said, well, I want to be a senior student, I'm just like some petulant child, right? And, and I thought, why do I want to be a senior student? What is that all about? Um, well, it's my ego, right? I want to be a senior student. And I actually sat with that for a number of years, and, and then I realized it's really about an act of service. Being a senior student comes with, um, comes with responsibilities to the Zendo, and it is a position of service. Uh, it's, if, you, if you come into it with power and ego, uh, you won't, I believe, be fulfilling the, the position well. And so the striving is to do it in a way that, that comes from service. I have a verse that I say daily. Um, the first part I got from my therapist many years ago, and the second I added, and she said, try this on. I am ready to be successful without undue suffering and pain. Well, that's really great. So I say that a lot. And then I added, for the benefit of all sentient beings, because that's the service part. That's, that's the why. That's what makes it all work, to be of service. And it's, it's a really, really wonderful lens. Am I perfect in it? Probably not, but still what a lens. So from time to time, I, I ask myself, right, why do I do this? Why do I sit in? Certainly a lot of other people ask me that as well. And I think about that in some ways as sort of carrots and sticks. Um, Roshi said to me, Roshinko said some long time ago, you know, it would be a shame to miss your life. And Zazen has provided me a way to, to miss less of my life. And uh, I remember my mother, towards the end of her life, looked back and said, 
You know, it just all seems like it was a dream. And in some ways it is a dream and in other ways it would be a shame to miss it, that to miss the experiences that are present for us. But at the end of the day, I think I said, because my life became easier. There's a Roshi at the Zen Center in Shelburne, Vermont, uh, who I sat with a couple of times. And she said, you know, I just noticed once I found Zen, my life became easier. And I think that's true for most of us. We stop, stop fighting the causes and conditions and understanding them. We start seeing things from different perspectives. Uh, we start seeing life as an opportunity for service. And so the biggest impact is really that you experience, I experience more of my life. So there's a koan, there's always a koan from the Blue Cliff Record uh, that I think relates directly to this, and it's Sui Fing's grain of rice. So Sui Fing, who's teaching his community, said, pick up the whole great earth in your fingers. It's as big as a grain of rice. Throw it down before you. If, like a lacquer bucket, you don't understand, I'll beat the drum to call everyone to look. I'm going to say it again because it's short. Pick up the whole great earth in your fingers. It's as big as a grain of rice. Throw it down before you. If, like a lacquer bucket, you don't understand, I'll beat the drum to call everyone to look. Love that con. So, Sui Fing, um, who's also known as Itsun and Seppo, uh, he shows up in four koans in the Blue Cliff Records. Uh, he lived in the ninth century, uh, and Sui Fing, which means Snowy Peak, is the name of one of the mountains where he lived, and that's what he's called according to Zen custom. And he studied with several great teachers. He spent time in a stone grotto, uh, which may be why I was attracted to him, was he found a way to get that time of no new input. Um, he eventually was urged to speak in the world and teach, and at age 49, uh, he began to teach. And with 10 years, he was such a powerful teacher that he had 1,500 followers. Uh, he was a great teacher and really embodied this in proverb that a superior vessel takes a long time to complete. Just like Sazen for most of us. Right? To become a superior vessel, it takes a long time to complete. By the age of his death, at age 87, he had 56 enlightened disciples, many of whom are in the Blue Cliff Record. So he knew a lot about picking up the whole great earth in your fingers. So picking up the great earth in between your fingers, how do we do that? Well, it's different for everyone, of course, but for me, the path was learning to breathe and to carry that into my life. And that's why I sit Zazen. So to close, just a verse from the Zen Grove. A single kind of sound gives rise to endless variety of feelings. Some sounds of that kind we can bring ourselves to hear. Others we can't bear to listen to. But please listen and please sit so you can hear it all when you do. Take good care. Thank you. Mm -hmm.